Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, September the 10th, 2020. This is episode 2728 of the Survival Podcast. I thought it was a good day to do an episode, or just a good time of the year, to do an episode on finding your why and your passion. It's It's a subject we've talked about a lot over the years but we haven't really talked about for quite a while. Now, there's a couple reasons I'm doing this. Uh, one is a listener named Rob, Rob Kaiser, um, said yesterday, I put in the title, you know, finding your, your what and your why as an author or something like that. And he said, anything on finding your why is good. And he's right. But it's, I was like, man, I kind of blew that title because what I meant yesterday about finding your why as an author wasn't like your, your life why, like we're going to talk about today. It was your why as an author, like do you want it as a income stream, do you want it as a credibility thing as a teacher, or a credibility thing as a speaker, or what have you. That's what I meant there. Today I'm talking about a much broader why, and I guess those two things can be related. Uh, but your real why in life, why you do the things that you do, why you want the things that you want, the, the most important components to your why, and how your passion can get you there. And... I have to say that finding your passion has become a crutch for spiritual and for business gurus in modern times, in the last 10 years. But it's, it's actually a crutch because it works. It's a crutch because it's real. It's a crutch because it's true. So it's easy to kind of lean on for these gurus, but they're actually right. They're actually right. What I want to start off with is like kind of understanding that a lot of times people that say, you know, following your passion is bunk or whatever are full of shit. And my favorite person to use to explain this is, is Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban is probably the best known billionaire in the world for saying that following your passion is bunk. Following your passion is, is not the way that you have to do what the market wants or whatever. As though fo- following your passion is some kind of voodoo shit running around with a freaking, uh, what are those things called? Like dowsing stick or something, looking for your life or whatever, right? And, um, and the reason he's full of shit when he says it is because that's how he became a billionaire. So I used to actually work with Mark Cuban many, many years ago before he was a billionaire, uh, when he was already quite successful. But he was building um, an entity at the time known as AudioNet which eventually became Broadcast.com, which got sold to Yahoo, and then Yahoo destroyed it. <laughs> and a lot of people think that like he's like some guy that lucked out selling a domain name or something. He actually built a really great platform. The fact Yahoo did, bought it, didn't understand it, didn't know what to do with it, and ruined it, doesn't change that he built something that was amazing. The whole purpose of the AudioNet product suite, you gotta you got to go back. This is early 2000s. This is where half the people in the country... When they got on the internet, still heard. You've got mail, right? That, this is that's how long ago this is. He is a massive basketball fan, massive basketball fan, and his favorite college team at the time was Indiana Hoosiers. Right? He was a huge Hoosiers fan, but he lived here in Dallas, Fort Worth. 
and he's driving around in his car, and he's wishing he could listen to Hoosiers basketball. That's what he wanted to be able to do. I don't know if you've If you're from the area, you know it's not something we tend to have on the AM radio dial very often. Now, he was working very closely with a gentleman named Patrick Seaman. Now, unlike my prior relationship with Mark Cuban, I can still actually talk to Patrick Seaman. He'll take my phone calls. We can have conversations. Um, He was working with a gentleman named Patrick Seaman who had been doing some pretty amazing stuff, believe it or not, with J.C. Penney's with audio. And they were talking, and they they put together, them and some other folks, one gentleman's name was Curtis Rogers and and a few other people, this idea that they could build a product where a radio station could be on the Internet. Now, today, you're like, so what? Again, we're back to, you've got mail. Okay, We're back in that time. And they, they thought we could make a product that was so... But you know, boilerplate that we could call up a radio station, get with their programming manager, say, "How would you like to be able to stream online?" And if they said yes, we could take over from there. We plugged a few things in, hooked a few things up, and bingo, bango, zingo, they could have a button that they put on their website, and they are on the internet. That's what they built. Now, the only reason that he went down that path was because he followed a passion of his that was he loved basketball. And he always wanted to be an NBA team owner as well. And he knew that if he built this thing the right way, at the time in history that it was, in fact, this wasn't early 2000s, this is the 90s. Now that I think about it, yeah, this is the 90s. Jeez, I'm old. Anyway, this was like 97, 96, this is in that range of time. If he built this, he was going to hit it just right, and he would be able to make a fortune, and he could become the owner of a basketball team. So while he didn't follow his passion directly, i.e., I love basketball, so I'm going to go coach basketball for a living, everything he did was driven around the concept of, of his love for the game of basketball. So when he says, following your passion is bunk, he's the one full of bunk, and I will change it to shit. He's full of shit. Because without that drive, he's also like a techno geek. I mean, he really is. He's, he is, is so into technology, and he always was. And he, he, when this internet thing came out, right, like back then, he wanted to understand it, to know what to do. Like he was passionate about it too. He's passionate about technology. So he may not be passionate about every product line, that he gets involved with. But he's passionate about money, basketball, and technology, and his whole damn life has been built to the level of a billionaire following those three things. So my question to you then is, why can't you do the same thing? And maybe not to the level of being a billionaire, but simply to the level of having what you want in your life. And and I'm going to ask you a lot of questions today, and this will be the only one that I'll answer for you. The answer is you can. You can and you should. But exactly how that looks and what that looks like for you, I don't know. Let's start out today with a quote, this one by T.D. Jakes. He said, if you can't figure out your purpose, figure out your passion. For your passion will lead you right into your purpose. I think it's very true. I think when people figure out what they really love to do, And then they design a life that allows them to spend their time doing that thing. They can't help but fall into their purpose. My passion 
is all the things that we routinely talk about on this show. Growing your own food for me is a passion. It's not just something I do. It's something that from the, from the first time I understood it as a child, I loved it. Like, you know, I'm sure a lot of you guys have kids and you take the kids into the garden and they're not, you know, sometimes they have fun, but sometimes they don't, but you got to pull them in a little Like, that didn't happen. You know, everything that was about food and plants that, that, that I was ever asked to do as a kid, it was like one of the few things you could ask. Like, it has me to clean my room. You know, I'll get to it. You want me to go down to the garden and pick the beans? I would go right down and do it. I was passionate about guns. Extremely passionate about guns. You know, when my, my grandfather or my uncles would come home, And they'd been out, you know, hunting all day, and I was too young to go. And they made sure the weapons were clear and all, and I knew how to do that, too, at a very young age. But I was not old enough to go hunting. They would come home, you know, especially like dove hunting or something, where they, you know, got a lot of action, and the guns are filthy. I got to clean the guns. I didn't have to clean the guns. I was allowed to clean the guns, and I would strip the, I mean, I would clean those military level. Because I was passionate about learning how they worked and what they did. Like, there's so many things in my life that, that I feel that way about. But the thing that I was always the most passionate about, I'm going to ask you some questions here in a little bit that's going to help you figure out yours. When, pe when I look back over my whole life and I say to myself, when I was trying to figure out what to do, and I got beyond I just need money, right? And I, th I thought, like, into the future, like, what do I want to do? And, and at the same time, what is something that I always did? It was take things that I was passionate about and teach them. There was a time when I was, you know, I was an okay student in school. I thought about going to college. I joined the Army because I wasn't ready yet. I got out of the Army. I could have taken a bunch of money from the Army and went to college. I had the GI Bill and college fund and all that stuff. And I even talked to a couple colleges about going. And when I was asked, you know, what do you want to do? I really didn't know, which is why I didn't go. But if it was anything, it was probably going into the educational path. And because I'm somewhat fluent in Spanish, and I knew I would have had plenty of time to become more so, I thought about maybe teaching foreign language. Maybe that would be interesting. And I, would, I, even, I thought about it even back then as a young, young man. That the beauty of teaching that at like a high school level Any student I had would have chosen the class. It wouldn't be like teaching math where the kid had to take it. Like you, 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 you decide you want to do a foreign language, then you decide which foreign language. So I, I thought maybe that, but you know, I, it was never right. It was never. It would, I would have been miserable, and my students would have been miserable. But teaching, teaching was always something. And whenever I got into a situation where I understood something. And somebody expressed an interest in it. I just started teaching. I, you didn't have to say, hey, will you teach me how to do this? Like if I saw somebody struggle with something, hey, let me show you. And I was not only something I felt compelled to do, but it was something that I was, I was good at naturally. That had a way of like, okay, you're struggling with this. Explain to me where you're stuck. And then being able to say, okay, let me take this and repackage it so that we can get you past the thing that's holding you back. And I found that I'm the, the, the more developed a student is, the better I am. I am not going to be a, a guy that's going to be good at teaching seven-year-olds. I'm not. 
It doesn't mean I can't do it. I won't, it won't mean I can't have some fun with some things with some seven-year-olds and showing them how to do something. Like, here's how you grow lettuce in a, in, a, in a jar or something. But I like to speak to a certain level of intellectual capacity, even if it's not something we'd normally think of as being intellectual. Because all things are. How you cast a fly rod is extremely intellectual. It seems so mechanical. And I guess you could teach somebody how to do it with the timing of a metrodome. But even that has an intellectual component to it. But what, what's really the part of learning to cast a fly rod, for instance, that actually matters is beyond the mechanical. So there's a certain mechanical of moving that rod back and forth and understanding that you're casting a line because the fly weighs nothing. And understanding things like if I pull this line as I cast, I can actually throw more momentum in it and get greater distance to be able to cast them to the wind or what have you. But the mechanics of that are actually pretty simple. What makes it exciting is starting to realize that once I have these mechanics, now I can get, I can get somewhat artistic. I was going to say fancy, but fancy is the wrong word. Fancy is something you do to be fancy. Fancy is something you do to be fancy. Artistic is something you do for the expression or for the result to me. And so that you can actually observe the way fish are rising. You can actually observe the way that the flies are behaving. And then you use the basic mechanical skill and you fine-tune it until you can emulate the situation that's causing the fish to rise. And that's you can't really teach that to someone who's just learning how to cast a fly rod. So taking that as a metaphor for all things, I like to teach at a level. I like to teach at a level where the student has the base knowledge. They've learned something. They know something about the subject. And now I'm taking it to another level. But as I've realized in life, when you go into podcasting, if you're doing the type of podcasts that I do, you're both a teacher and a mentor. And they're different things. A teacher is one who teaches, especially somebody hired to teach. I can only teach you what I know. I can only teach you what I know. So I have to know how to cast a fly rod to teach you how to cast a fly rod. You see how that works? It's really simple. And if, if I'm going to teach you something concrete like here's, how, here's one way to build an ebb and flow bed, until I know a different way, I can only teach you that way. So for years I taught ebb and flow in aquaponics how with a siphon. Why? It's what I learned. You have a bell siphon. And I knew some other ways to do it, like with a solenoid. But then I learned, you know what? I can do this with a timer and I can feed through the bottom and when the timer shuts off, the water drains back out the pipe that brought it and you use two, an overflow stack and a delivery stack. And then I could teach it that way. But I couldn't teach it that way till I knew it. That's teaching. Teaching requires knowledge because it's the transfer of knowledge to another. A mentor is not a teacher. They can be a teacher. They can be one of the things they do. But in general, a mentor is a trust, trusted counselor or guide. And that's how I'm trying to come at this episode today. And I thought it would be a good opportunity for me to say something, especially for people that are new to the show. When you tune into a show like this and a guy talks about himself a lot, you might start to think, man, this guy loves the sound of his own voice or something like that. 
I'm teaching in the style that I know how to teach, and I'm mentoring in the style that I know how to mentor. And in mentorship, the most powerful thing that you have as a guide is your own life experience. Because you're not actually trying to communicate, take this plus this, and it equals that. That's teaching. Mentorship is about guiding, counseling, and inspiring people to learn things and develop in ways that surpass what you have to offer them. If you look at science as a classic example of moving from a teaching relationship with someone to a mentorship relationship with someone, a scientific mentor to a young scientist will often lead that young scientist down a road of discovery. And that young scientist will come back with some new theory or some new uh, 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 method or some new thing that's been invented that the, the mentor would have never thought of. So if you're mentoring someone in aquaponics or hydroponics, it's very possible that some of you came up with the timer method of ebb and flow before I did and you just didn't tell me. Maybe you did and I was busy and I didn't pay attention. Because mentorship does that. Mentorship exposes people to life experiences and the wisdom that have come from those life experiences with the intent not to have the mentee, that's a real word, believe it or not, mentee, do the same thing, but to evaluate their life through that lens that the mentor is providing so that they can make good decisions in their own lives. Because... This is the issue with this is the issue with the gurus and why this is a complicated thing when it comes to finding your passion. Most things in your life that you have a question about, they can be answered definitively in some way or another. I mean, if you want to learn how to grow food, whether it's hydro aquaponics or it's gardening or it's conventional farming or it's civil path, like there's there's thousands of ways to do this. But there are knowns, and they are concrete, and we can say, well, in this climate, raised bed gardening works really well. Here's how to do this thing. Or if you have a math problem, we can, no matter how complex that math problem is, there's, there's a way to solve it. It's concrete. It has a component to it that can be looked at and answered. Even if the answer is, there is no answer yet. We know that. When it comes to what is my why and what is my passion, it is one of those places in life that no one can answer it but you. So it's it's a sticking point, and that's why it requires mentorship versus teaching. Teaching establishes knowledge. Mentorship establishes a relationship where one person helps the other person more clearly evaluate their own life, their own needs, and their own goals. So that's how I'm coming at this today. And the most powerful tool that mentor could ever have is here's my life. Here's what's happened to me. So when you're getting that from someone, you're getting the best they can give you. Not, oh, be like me. And, and I wanted to be clear about that today. So as I go through these questions, I do want you to understand one thing to do if you get stuck. Because some of them are going to be hard. Some of them might be easy, depending on where you are in this walk. But if you get stuck on any question, flip it to the negative. If I ask you what you want and you don't know, change it to what you don't want. As soon as you do that, it gets really easy because most of us know what we don't want. 
I don't want to get up at, at 4 o'clock in the morning. Well, why do you? And then it starts leading you to, well, what do I want? What do I want? Because it's not just you don't want to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Why are you getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning? Is that permanent? Is it something that you have to change in your life? What do you really want? And you'll find it if you go down that path of discovery. So here we go. Finding your purpose and your why and your passion through 10 simple questions. Number one, what can I do to be of service to others? And which of those things gives me joy? And it's actually important that you, you, you answer that question in its totality. Because what can you do to be of service to others? You could go to a public place where people stick gum under tables and scrape all the gum off for them. I'm sure people would appreciate that. You probably don't want to. You could go to a public park and pick up dog poop. You 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 probably don't want to. Somebody has to do it, I guess, but you you, you probably don't want to. You probably prefer that the person who had the dog picked up the own dog poop, right? So just because you can do something, even do it well that's of service to others, doesn't mean it's really your passion or your why. doesn't mean you might not do it for a time. There's a lot of things in my life that I did for a time so that I could develop the skills and the knowledge and the resources to have what I really wanted. I was willing to pay my dues, but I wasn't willing to pay them forever. And I wasn't willing to pay them without an end in sight, some place where I would not have to do it anymore. I was patient. I did it for about 15, almost 20 years of paying those dues. Honestly, longer because I started paying my dues younger than most people. I, I, I've been on my own, i.e. no parents living in my own place that I paid for since I was 16 years old. So, yeah, it's, it's probably 20 years before I was completely and totally on my own as an entrepreneur, which was always the goal. I had entrepreneurial things before that, but being able to step away and say, I don't have to do anything for anybody anymore except the things that I really want to do, that was probably 20 years. That's patience. If you can do it faster, do it faster. If I could go do it again, I could do it a lot faster. If I had the technology of today, at the time of the then, I could have done it faster too. There's opportunities today that weren't there. So there was a lot of things I was good at. I was good at forecasting sales. I, when I came into my job with Fluke Networks and you're, you're, you're looking at a territory that's supposed to do $500 million this year and you have historical pricing and, and data and available and drop it into a spreadsheet, I was able to very quickly say, you know, that's not going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. And I was told to change it, and I did, but I was good at it. And my numbers were, my models were good. I'm really good at modeling shit in Excel. I don't like it. It is something I can do to be service-oriented toward others. It could even be very altruistically, altruistically service to others. If I can model data, then that data could be something that's useful or helpful or beneficial to people beyond, hey, here's how much you're going to sell. But I don't like it. I don't like it. So you've got to find the thing that makes you of service to other people and that you like doing. Next. What makes you forget that time is even passing by as you do it? To where you don't even know anymore how long you've been doing something, where you're totally lost in it. Now, you also kind of want to vend these things. Like, 
somebody might feel that way about video games. And I'm not saying you couldn't come up with some way to make video games a big part of your life, but that's is that really being of service to others? Does it really get you where you want to be, or is it just a hobby or a pastime? And can that then become something that is of service to others? So that it, because see, when something's of service to others, it's not about just being altruistic, right? It's that if something is of service to others, it has value to others, and therefore it can be marketed and it can become something that you earn a living by doing. So if we can take those two things and kind of Venn diagram them where they overlap, to where we can find something where I really do get to a point where I could do this for hours and I don't even realize it's been hours, and it's of service to others, and I'm good at it, then I've got something. For me, an example of that, that will probably never be something that's that's a career, but it's still a passion and something that I do would be fishing. I was I was talking about this recently. How if you gave me a choice, I could either you know I hunt and I fish. I think it was in my, one of my videos. I hunt and I fish. But if you gave me a choice, you can either keep hunting for the rest of your life or you can keep fishing for the rest of your life. But you can't do both. Now, my, my honest answer to that would be, go screw, I'll do whatever I want, and that's why I have my life the way it is. But if, if that was actually a choice for some reason, in some way, I was backed into a corner, I had to make that, I would choose fishing. And the reason I would choose fishing is, there's times when I'm on a deer stand where I'm like, three hours till dark, oh, but deer comes. Because, you know, if it doesn't, I'm just stuck here. Sometimes I'm really at peace with it and sometimes I'm like, if it's cold or miserable out or I just don't think I'm going to see any game or whatever, but you put me on the side of a lake with a couple rods in the water fish are biting, good, fish aren't biting, good, sun's setting, good, sun's rising, good I'm I and, and you know, if if things are going well and we are on action and whatever, hours go by and what time is it? Right, So that could be a place where I'm of service to others. I'm good at it, and it could be a profession if I want it to be. I could be a fishing guide. It's not what I most want, so it's not what I most do. But that, see, that's an example starting to vend those things together if you're looking at it from a career perspective. But there's nothing wrong about having things that are passionate in your life and your why behind setting up your life with autonomy is so that you can just go do them. Not everything has to be directly of service to others. This is just a good thing to consider. And then I would also say you need to have a conversation with yourself as a child. And I'm going to give you a warning. If you really do this the right way, if you have fun with it, that child might kick your ass. And what I mean is, when you were 10, you would have probably not struggled with these questions. And when you wanted something, you just tried to figure out how to get it. It didn't always work. Sometimes it blew up in your face, but then you just figured something else out and tried to get that, and you were happy whenever it worked. You can say, but I grew up, I matured. Yeah, but was that something you needed to grow up from or mature from? I mean, if it's getting in the way of being able to pay your bills and take care of yourself and your family, sure. But in general, that general, general characteristic of, I'm just going to figure out what I want and try to figure out how to have it, is that a bad thing? Is that a bad? I don't think it's a bad thing. I think one of the reasons that so many people are so miserable is they've given themselves an excuse to be lazy and not getting what they want because they've convinced themselves that it's somehow not okay to be able to simply say, "I want this. I'm gonna figure out how to have it." 
I think we'd have a pretty happy world if most people did that, as long as the answer wasn't, I'm going to go thump somebody over the head and take it from them. So if you do it within ethical boundaries, that kid had something that somehow you lost as you grew up. A willingness to fail. A willingness to fail. You ever talk to kids and they're going to go build a fort or something and they start explaining what they're going to do and you're like, that's totally not going to work. The smartest thing you can do is keep your mouth shut as long as nobody's going to get electrocuted, end up with a nail through their hand or cut off a finger. The best thing you can do is shut up. If they come back to you with a problem and ask for help, then you can mentor the help. But it just so happens that when they go try to do that thing, the thing that you're sure of going to fail probably will, but then they'll look at it and go, well, that didn't work. And they'll, if you give them the opportunity, they'll figure it out. If you talk to that child in you and say, what should we do? And have a conversation, an internal dialogue with, see, that's the, this is the thing that you have to understand. And this is true spiritually and it's true psychologically. You are 10-year-old you. You are 12-year-old you. You are 16-year-old you. And if you happen to be 44 right now, you're 44-year-old you. And you're every permutation of you in between. There was no point as you grew and developed as a human being that you ceased being 12-year-old Frank or Tom or Bill or Sally or Mary. You're still that person, that little boy or that little girl, still you. You're just that plus everything in your life after that. So that person that you were, that could be wide-eyed and wondrous and daring and risky and fun, still exists within you. You just have to go find them. But when they see what you've done to your life, they might whoop your ass. Maybe you need it. Just a warning and just a way to think about this. Next, what do people come to you for help with? If your phone rings... And it's a friend, and at the call, and you know that the call is a question, a, 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 a call for help. What is it probably about? And take your train wreck friend who just wants to be heard, unless counseling is something that's common for you, but you know that, that's really not calling you for a solution, and put it on the shelf for a minute. Maybe we'll come back to it. Maybe that actually is what you're looking for here, but. You know, putting it this way, remember when you were, guys, remember when you were a teenager and there's that girl you thought you were going to date that you were never going to date that always told you about all her problems? Yeah, not her. And not anything like that in this question. The person that calls you and says, hey, I have a problem with my blank. What is that thing? What is that thing that people call you and say, hey, can you help me with this? Because they know that when I call Bill and I ask him a question about reloading, He's got an answer, right? And I know that seems like overly overly obvious, but a lot of people don't realize how much you're actually good at. Because here's the next part of that question. And you enjoy it. And you look forward to it. And you get excited when you start explaining it. You know, I, I do like business. I don't love business the way people think I do. I, I, I don't think. A lot of times when people bring me a business question, I'll try to help them. But boy, it ain't the same as when they ask me a question about fishing or gardening 
or guns. And then with guns, like so then like things get taken down into uh, a niche within a niche, right? So what we'd call in marketing a vertical. You ask me about guns. Yeah, cool. It's kind of an uber tactical red dot site for an AR question. Tagging out to J.R. Haley or somebody else like that that I know. I, I, I don't really care. It's not that important to me. The one that I have works good enough. I can make people dead with it 300 meters away. I can do that with iron sights. I, I'm good. But you start asking me about reloading the diminutive 357 Magnum to the point where it performs at its optimum level on deer at 100 yards. Now I'm interested. You start talking to me about cowboy guns. Now I'm interested. That's some, see, and I, I actually know that. What's that for you? You start asking me about fishing, I'm interested. You start asking me about fishing for bluefin tuna, I'm interested in what you have to say because I don't know anything about it other than what I see on TV. I'd really like to know more about it, but I'm, I'm not interested in teaching it, but I, I'm still interested. But you start asking me about how do we find that elusive little white uh, white bass in Texas lakes? I'm in it now. Now, see, now I have the knowledge and I have the interest and I have the passion and I'm happy to answer that question. And again, it doesn't matter what it is for me. What is it for you? Bill calls you. He asks you for your advice at fill in the blank and you're actually excited to give that advice and you know your advice is good. And then make allowance for the fact that maybe Bill calls you all the time and doesn't take your advice and that makes you miserable. And it still might be a good place to be. It's just maybe Bill's not the right client is a way to look at it. I, I, I do enjoy business and marketing and sales. Maybe not to the level that I enjoy things that are natural, like nature and birds and trees and, and fish and game and, and plants. But I do enjoy it. What made me the most miserable as a consultant, marketing consultant, sales consultant, etc., was giving good advice, being paid well for it, and then watching it not be followed. That's something that is very difficult for me. But here's why I know. Here's why I know that I am more passionate about plants and trees and fish and stuff like that than I am with business. If you come to me for that advice and I give you that advice and you don't follow it, I'm at peace with it. I don't get frustrated about it. I can let it go. Because I, I look at it as simply as a process of this is all just going to be what it's going to be. When I was doing it professionally for business and marketing, the results were what was important to me. And the result wasn't me getting a check. You know, me getting my monthly retainer check or, or something like that. That was not what was important to me. What was important to me was the result on the other end of the plan. I've taken time to sit down for this person and write them an end-to-end -end marketing plan that makes allowances for contingencies and everything. And then they paid me a whole crap load of money for it, and now they don't do it. That made me so miserable. And I realized it was because I cared more about the results than the person paying me for the plan. So it was something I couldn't keep doing. I couldn't keep doing it because it made me unhappy. Next, if you could have students... What would they want to learn?
I'm not asking you so much what you would want to teach. But if you could have a group of people who would come to you thirsty for knowledge, willing to listen, willing to act on what you said, what would they, what would they want to learn that would make you feel that way? If you get that answer, you're probably pretty close to figuring out what your passions in life are. And now again, not all passions need to be pursued as a profession. But how do we pursue a profession that supports the passion? Or how do we use the passion to support a profession? Either way are good ways to be in our life. Because you do have to be careful. There are movies that I'm convinced that for one reason or other, I was tortured with by the universe for one line or two in them. Two that I think of right away come from a, a woman that I was engaged to before I met Dorothy. One was my big fat Greek wedding. It has nothing to do with this, but I'm going to tell it anyway because I think it's a funny line out of it. In, in that movie, the daughter was asking the mom about something she wanted. I don't remember what. I don't know if it was the wedding or something else in life. I don't give a shit. It was a terrible movie. It was awful. Don't watch it. I'm giving you the only thing you need from this movie. Right now. You do not have to watch it now. Um, but she says to the daughter, and this is so true. She says, let me tell you something. The man is the head of the family. But the woman is the neck. And she can turn the head any way she wants to turn the head or something like that. And there's, there's so much truth to that. In, 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 in a, a lot of families, that's the case. The, the man might be in charge, but the woman determines what he does anyway, right? The other movie, though, that's more germane to the discussion today was a movie called Hope Floats. This was also a terrible movie. This girl said, but hope really does float. I told her, so does shit. I mean, that's, that's how bad this movie was. But in this movie... The female character ends up meeting this guy that's, you know, she's destined to be with, but doesn't know, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, he's uh, kind of a workaday guy. He doesn't have a lot of money and what have you. But she finally goes into his house, and his cabinetry is little, literal artwork. You know, beautiful wood and inlays, and I mean, it's just, it's beyond gorgeous. It's the kind of artwork that if you're a professional cabinet maker, people get in a line to have you do their cabinets someday. Really wealthy people are like, I want Tom, and Tom's not available till next year, then we will wait till next year. Like that is what you know they, they make this out to be. And she says, but if you can do this, why don't you do this? Because basically he's, he's, he's a fairly poor guy. He said, oh, that would you just great. Take something you love, turn it into a profession, and destroy it for yourself. That was like, oh, maybe this movie doesn't... No, it sucks, right? But it had that moment. It had that moment that I can't... I don't even remember what the movie was about. I can remember that moment. So maybe I was tortured by the universe with that movie so that I could know that one thing. And my belief from that moment is that that is both true and untrue. That what you love can be destroyed by commercializing it. But it does not have to be. Choosing how you do it and doing it on your terms. So what would make that person miserable is doing his best work for somebody and having them complain and bitch and be a Karen about it. 
But if he came at it from the standpoint of, I'm going to do one project a year, you don't like it, I'm not doing it for you. I'm not doing it. I'll fire you as a customer. I'm not going to, this is it. I do it my way or, or you don't get me. He would, he would immediately lose half his business before he had it. But then the business he did have, he would be able to do the cabinetry work the way that he wanted to do it. He would be able to sculpt it for his client versus have his client tell him how to sculpt it. And he wouldn't get overworked because he would charge enough money to make enough money to do what else he wants to do in his life and only do a couple, three a year. That would be how you would have to structure that particular business if you were, if you were that good. Question is, are you? But you, you really, because that's where I'm going with this next. What are you really good at that you don't hate or simply have to do? What are you, I mean, you're good at it. Or you could be. You're okay at it, but you know you could be. But you don't hate it. And you're not doing it only because you have to do it. Long, long, long ago, when I was just coming up in the world of technology, I got a job doing fiber optic work for a, a contract agency, and I got contracted to a company called uh, Lockheed. And I was redoing their optical network. And fiber optic work, when it comes to like installing it, terminating it all, it's, it's kind of arts. It's kind of artistry. At least it was back then. I think a lot of stuff's been made so mechanical now and it's so much easier. But back then you had this little tiny piece of glass that was inside this rubber coating. It was inside this bigger rubber coating. And there's a bundle of those. It made a cable of, let's say, 24 strands of optics. And you would have to strip off the end of this cable. They had a thing called a breakout kit. You'd have to put this. And obviously, I mean, you, it's glass. You can break it. And once it was in there, it was fairly stable, but then each piece of glass had to have the insulation, or the, it's not really insulation because there's no, something that's like the coating removed. And then it had to be inserted into a fitting and somehow attached, either using a UV or an epoxy, of, a UV cured uh, adhesive or an epoxy adhesive. And then you had this connector with this little tip of glass sticking out of it. And you used a tool that was made out of diamonds to score the glass and cut that piece of glass that was together. And then it had to be polished, looked at under a microscope till it was completely clear. And then you tested it to make sure that it was of high enough quality to function. Then it had to be installed. You'd plug it in to wherever it was. And you don't just want, like anybody that's done cabling work knows, if you're good at cabling work, you get to where that's artistry in of itself. There's a way that you dress the cables in. And I got some happiness out of it, and I was good at it. And I was fast. And I could have stayed in that world forever. I did it because I had to. Just because I was good at it didn't mean it was I was something I was passionate about. What are you that good at that when you're done, you really feel good about yourself? And, and like, does it sustain? Because when I first learned that profession, and I would get done with a job, like my first couple, they were okay. They were good enough to make the client happy. But by like a third or fourth time, I got to where I was quick, I was good, and I'd sit back and look at that, and I'd look, go, there's one, there's one strand. It's just not the way it's supposed to be. And, you know, you 
take a couple thigh wraps off and straighten that out, take a little slack out of it, and, and you got done with it, and you looked at it, and you took a picture of that shit. And yeah. And after like a few months, and I did this for about two years, a few months of doing it, I was like, okay, it's another one. It's another one. I didn't really care. It was challenging till it wasn't, and then it was boring. But I get as much satisfaction out of setting a hook today as I did when I was 15. So, see, that's the difference, right? So, what are you, what are you really good at that you don't have to or simply uh, are required to do, and you don't hate it? Because some things you can hate. Like, if I had to go back, like something happened, I lost my whole TSP Empire. And I had to go back to installing cabling again, if there's still even a profession in that today, you know. I could do it. I wouldn't hate it, but I really didn't want to do it. You see, you see the difference there? Then I, I think another thing people really need to do is realize their failures are only liabilities if they choose for them to be. They should be assets. Let's look at something like having a criminal background. Having a criminal background. That seems like it's going to be a liability. Even if you're reformed, you're not going to ever cause any problems. Again, you've got that hanging over your head for the rest of your life. Do you know there's been authors who have faked criminal backgrounds because it sells more books? Think about that for a second. There was some author, o Oprah, promoted. And, and it, it's what it came out being. It wasn't that he was uh, like some scumbag that pretended to be a good guy. He was actually kind of a good guy his whole life, but he wrote in his success story this time, you know, this time in his life that he had to transition from the underdog story, going to prison, whatever. And what destroyed his relation or his reputation was when it came out that it was all fake. That his life was actually pretty good the whole time. He created a false problem to use it as an asset. Now that should tell you something there. That yes, maybe your life would be better had whatever that negative thing in the past not occurred. But there is a way. There is a way to structure it, to use it, to learn from it. There is some way that it can become an asset in your life versus a liability. Because most of the time what I find is these things are not liabilities. They're actually excuses and they're by their liabilities. So the person, well, you know, this was, I had a rat of run luck or whatever. It's an excuse. Because people fear this exercise we're going through today. They, it's terrifying. Because once you know what you want, then you have to stop making excuses and you have to go get it. Most people, I think, in their hearts, they really do know what they want. But they don't want to say it. I'm trying to get you to say it today, whatever that is. Next, who are your heroes and why? This is more important. How have they changed over time? Who are your heroes and why, and how have they changed over time? When, when I look at this, when I was a young man, some of my heroes were like business tycoons and icons. You know who I'd call a hero of mine today? I also would call him a mentor. Jeff Lawton. Do you know when Jeff Lawton became that to me? Like I want, because here's what I say a hero is, right? There's two ways to define hero, and I'm talking about one versus the other when I say your heroes. A hero is, in the other way, somebody's gonna, somebody is being shot at, and they charge into it and they save a life, right? That's one kind of hero. What I mean when I say who are your heroes, who are people you want to be more like? Who are people you look at and say, I want to become more like them? 
And how has that changed? So at one time, I wanted to be very successful in business. I wanted a lot of money. And, and the people that I chose to consider my heroes, and again, not people who I thought hung the moon or whatever, people who I thought I am going to work to be more like that person. I'm going to follow that person's example. It would take a while before I would see a person and, and, and move them into that category, right? That they, they qualified as, as being so outstanding that, that they, they would be somebody that I would start reading their work or paying attention to what they do and trying to emulate them. When I saw that crappy-ass five-minute original Greening the Desert with Jeff Lawton with one terrible picture of him, and I couldn't have picked the guy out in a crowd after seeing it, but I understood what he was doing, it was instant. I want to be like this. Because what I had thought about, this was a long time ago, you know, and I just started really trying to garden in Texas, and I was bitching all the time about how hard it was. And it was hard compared to, I mean, Pennsylvania was like, Throw a tomato on the ground. Come back in a couple weeks, there's a tomato plant. I mean, it was really that easy is how it seemed. And I thought, if this guy's doing this in Jordan, in a Dead Sea Valley, I have no excuses. None. I have tremendous opportunity, and I'm going to do better. That's what made him the type of hero to me that I'm talking about. Not Because I've always said, like, no, don't make me a hero because I'll break your heart. And when you make someone the hero where they're this type of hero, but you're making them the other kind, where they're elevated above you, is something special. Sooner or later, that always ends badly. You always find out they're not Superman. Right? They're not Batman. They're a normal, everyday person. There's just something about them that you want to emulate. So that if you have that type of person in your life, And you're striving to be more like them in that way. And they fail in some other way. It doesn't hurt you. Because that's not what made you want to be like them in the first place. I'm sure there's some things about Jeff Lawton that are not in keeping with Jack Spierko. But his, his, his willingness to teach, his desire to learn more, his willingness to try things, like all that, that's that's what I'm talking about. So who's that for you? And how, how has that changed over time? The people that I look at today and I see that way are people that I probably wouldn't even have noticed when I was 20. And I realize this because at 20 I was following the concept of getting my life to a better place. That's it. People ask me back then, like, how do you decide to take a different job? If it taught me something they didn't know or I made more money at it, I would walk across the street for it immediately. Because it was only about doing better, getting more, having more, succeeding. That's all that it was. So that I would have enough breathing space to figure out what I wanted in my life. I couldn't have articulated it that way, but I can look at it back now and I can go, that's what was going on. I didn't give a shit. I had to sleep on my truck for a while, whatever. I don't care. I got to do better. I got to know more. I got to learn more. I got to do better. I got to have more. This job pays $2 an hour more, sign me up. But you've only been at this other one for six months. Yep, I was looking for, that, for a job when I found that one. I'm going on. This one's going to teach me other things. I'm going to learn about distribution channels and, and, and OEM projects. Yep, okay, we're going to go do this now. But it doesn't pay that much more. Don't care, I'm going to learn something. That's all it was. How can I get myself into a place where I have the financial ability to do what I want? And I probably would have took a different approach knowing what I know now. That's okay, though. 
And but that's why I would have looked at people and I would have I had a different and I had a different definition of a hero. In the end, they were people I wanted to be like, but I actually looked at heroes in the in the way that I think is a bad idea back then. As though they were better than me. Where today what I'm looking for in a hero is someone that can make me better. And if you've if you've progressed in that, or if you are fortunate and you've always had that, if that's who that's how you would define hero always, then those people tell you a lot about what you really want to be and what you really want in your life. Or if you have people like that in your life but you just never really thought of them as heroes, now you know. And now you know what you're looking for. You're looking to be more like somebody in some way that you're looking for that in yourself. Okay, next. What would you most like to be remembered for? Even if you haven't done it yet. You're dead. You're dead. Your dash is over. It's 30, 40, 50 years from now. Right? Lights are out for you. You're done. People are talking about you. You know, Bill was a great guy. He always... And if you were there, you know, like those movies where you're a spirit watching your own funeral, if that sentence could be completed any way you wanted, any way you wanted, and you would think this this life of mine mattered because that's what was said about me after I was gone, what would it be? What would it be? And you got to separate what you're supposed to say with what you really want to say that's so important here because people would say you know, he brought peace to planet earth or something come on really because we're going to get to that one next what would you really want the person to say he was always a good friend it's cliche but if it's true for you then part of your passion is, is, is being a good friend to others right He was always willing to, to teach people things. If that's what you would say, then your passion is teaching. He was always willing to help others. Then that's your passion. You see what I'm saying? That's how you have to answer this question. And the last one is kind of in the same vein, but a little bit different. If you could, What this is one is designed to do is to get you the altruistic answer without you attaching it to what you're supposed to say. Or to what you think you're supposed to say. If you could solve one problem for the world, but you wouldn't get credit for it, what would it be? If you could fix one major global problem, only one, almost like you have a magic wand and you can wave it, and that will be solved. And let's pull it back to something specific that in some way you can play an actual part in now for real. So world peace. Right? I would end all wars. Okay, let's be a little more realistic with it. Take the big problem and take a piece of that problem that you could solve. So you wouldn't say I wanted to end all sickness and disease or even find a cure for cancer. Maybe I feel like I would like to reduce cancer rates. And I would do that even if I got no credit for it. That would be the one that I would pick. What is that thing? Mine would be the ability of people to feed themselves. I really believe that so many other things 
that we concern ourselves about, like war and strife, if people know tomorrow I will eat and my children will eat, you won't have everything go away. But I think everybody will get a little bit better. And so it would be the one thing that I would want to do is in some way, and it wouldn't necessarily be a specific way, but in some way that I would know that I've, I've helped to solve that problem, that, that more people, and I feel like I've done a little bit of that, but when I ask this question of you, and I'm asking you to, to, a, level, to a level that you will never obtain, you let yourself dream a little bit. Like, I know my pay grade, as we used to say in the military. I know that no matter how much I do to teach people how to feed themselves, there's a limitation to how many people will actually do that and be impacted directly or indirectly. I understand that. I understand it's not going to have a global difference. But if I could have a global difference, and I could pick one, and I only get one, making sure that people can feed themselves and their children would be my one. I know that. If that's the same for you and it just happens to be coincidental, that's fine. But if it's if it's not, don't just latch onto somebody else's. Answer that question for yourself. If you go through these ten questions, and they're all in the show notes today, so you can go back and look at them again if you don't remember them. And you keep doing it. And you keep challenging yourself. Eventually, what you really want will form in your mind. And then, this is going to sound really oversimplified. But this is simple. It is super simple. Simple and easy ain't the same thing. Right? If you want to get better at playing a guitar, the answer is simple. Practice for several hours a day for 10 years. You'll get better. How good? I don't know. But there's, there's no doubt that anybody can, can, can come to that conclusion. If I practice guitar for two hours a day for 10 years, I'll be a better guitar player than I am today. Simple. Doing it ain't necessarily easy. A lot of guys that did it had bleeding fingers at some point, etc. Had to give other things up to do it, right? So easy and simple are different. That's how this is going to be. Once you know what you want, all you have to do is design it. That's all you have to do. It's very simple. It might involve sacrifices. And this is why it's really important to don't use this, if you use this, to give yourself an excuse of analysis paralysis, you're going to piss me off. I'll know it. Trust me. I don't care which one of you it is. No matter how many people are out there listening today, I'll know you did it, and it'll piss me off spiritually. I'll sense it through the universe. Don't, don't use what I'm about to say as an excuse. Please promise me you won't do that. But it is important to be sure that this is actually what you want. Before you really go for it. Before you really sacrifice. If you decide you want to move to another place, it's important to understand if that move will really fix whatever's holding you back. Even if it won't, it still might be a good idea to move there, but if you're only moving because you think it'll fix this thing and it won't fix this thing, and it makes you give things up that you don't really want to give up, it will make you miserable. You have to get some idea, some clear track as to what you really want, or at least what you really think you want, and then be open to change. As you start to make those sacrifices, as you start to get what you want, if it really turns out like, I really need to tweak this, or I really need to completely do an about-face, hey, hey, do it. As long as you're coming at it from this standpoint, even if you're 
even if you're missing your mark, you're missing your mark by an order of degrees, not an order of miles. It will be something that you can course correct to. And you can do it. And you can do it. There isn't a person in the United States of America today who can at least obtain reasonable employment who can't retire a millionaire. If that's what you really want, you just have to understand the process and the math and do the things that are necessary, and you'll have that. So if you can do that, there's nothing else you can't do. There's nothing else you can't do. It's all a matter of what you focus your time and your energy and your effort on. If you focus all your time, effort, and energy on, on, on screwing off and partying, you're not going to have the things that you really want unless what you really want is partying. I'm not here to judge it. I just think that that's probably short-term and it won't really help you long-term and you won't really have what you want and you'll probably end up unhappy in the end. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. So I have to come at it that way today, that whatever you come up with is probably worth pursuing. And I do that because anybody that would sit here and listen to me for an hour today is probably not going to come up with, I want to just get party and party and be drunk. You're probably going to have something better than that. I, I, I know that my time in my life that I did a lot of that stuff was because I was unhappy, and it was something to do until I figured out what I wanted. I know that as soon as I figured out what I wanted, all that shit just disappeared. It just went away. It just became unimportant to me. And I found focus. So if you haven't found focus yet, it's just because you haven't figured out what you need to focus on yet. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, want to remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can help support us by becoming a member of the site. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more, and you can sign up there. Or you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. And no matter what you buy at tspaz.com, you will help us out with the work that we do. But if you do find something that I've actually done a review on there, it is something I own, I've bought, I've spent my money on, and I would buy it again or I wouldn't have it on tspaz. Today's item of the day, I mentioned earlier this week, and I've finally gotten this one written up. I found this new brand of grilling uh, uh, tools. This is It's called Cave Tools, and this is their pellet smoker tube. Man, I love this thing. Uh, I've broken down in my review for it. You can read on the website. Construction, design, and capacity. Construction, simple. It's made out of really thick stainless steel compared to most of the other products on the market, so it doesn't warp, and it'll last a long time. Design, it's, it's well-designed, and that means it functions really, really, really well. The big thing is it's made with long oval holes instead of little round ones, so it, it just works better. It smokes great. And capacity. If you're going to be smoking something like, you know, you're making some hamburgers or someone to throw a little smoke on them, it doesn't really matter. But let's say you're going to be smoking like a pork shoulder or something. You're going to smoke for six hours or something like that. You, you don't want every couple hours to have to fill a daggone smoker tube back up and start it over. You want it to last for the duration of smoke. This thing has enough capacity to do eight hours. And I'll tell you another reason it's important. You, you want to have a large capacity with these things. The longer they run, the better they work. When you first start one up, you blow it out, and it starts smoking. It puts out a little bit of smoke, and over time, it puts out more and more smoke. And about, it's about 30 to 40 minutes after you light one that it really starts to put out just amazing smoke. So much so that, like, the first time I used this Cave Tools one, I put some pellets in it. I got it going. I made a couple burgers and came in the house. I went out like an hour later on the porch. I thought I, I, thought I left the burners on and had a, a grease fire going in because it was like smoke just pouring out of there. And I opened, I'm like, I looked at all the valves were off and I'm like, huh, 
I thought I shut it off, and I'm wondering maybe I had a leak. Who knows, you know? So I'm like kind of like with a broomstick, like lift, and there's no fire, and okay, it's fine. And it was cold smoking, and it was just the smoke tube. So I dumped a, ga a glass of water on it. Came back like an hour later, it was billowing, and it didn't go out. I had to pour like a freaking giant glass of water on it to put it out. So the longer they work, so you want to have some capacity to where you can let them go for a while and start them before you're actually going to cook, especially with a short term, like you're doing some steaks or something. You don't want a little waft of smoke. You want some smoke because you're only cooking those steaks for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. So you want capacity to do that. This thing's got so much capacity. It'll run for eight hours. And since you don't want it to do that and waste your pellets, if you don't want to cook that long, what you do is shove some foil in it and reduce its capacity that way. And it just it just works. Um This is, as far as I'm concerned, the best tool there is. And I, that doesn't mean there's none of them are as good. I don't believe you can make a tube like this better. So as you say, buy the best for the cost. Always be frugal, never be cheap. But I think there's a point where on something it's it's inexpensive enough that you just you don't skimp at all. You just buy the best. This is a $20 product. Check it out. It's, again, it's made by Cave Tools. Oh, I want to tell you, too. This is something to be watching out for with anything when you're doing your own research. Cave Tools put this item and a smoker box. Now, box is a, it's a box with a lid and all. This design uses wood chips instead of pellets. This uses pellets. The other one is designed really to use wood chips. And they link them as products so that when you go to Amazon, you can see, okay, here's the tube, or you can switch it, and here's the box. This is a bad idea if you're selling on Amazon because what happens is Amazon, Amazon groups the reviews together So there's some shitty reviews for this product that aren't for this product. They're for the box. The box apparently is not so great. It's a thinner steel. It warps. It doesn't work as good. Whatever. Um, so I'd like to tell you everything these people make is great, but they make those stupid, they, you know, rebranded those meat claws for, they're stupid. There's no, no need for that for doing pulled pork. Forks are work just fine. Meat claws. Idiocy. Um, And apparently not everything is top-notch. But this item and some other stuff I'll be bringing you by them is just fantastic. So be aware of that when you see reviews on Amazon and you see a lot of negative reviews. Read them. Make sure that, number one, the person doing the review is not an idiot. And number two, that the review is actually of the thing that you're thinking about buying. And the same with positive reviews. Because if it can happen in a negative way, it can happen in a positive way, too. You can have two items linked together. One of them's okay, so so. The other one's fantastic, and it's got 4.5 stars, a thousand reviews, or whatever. But they're not of the part that you're actually buying. So always be alert for that. A little extra info there for you. With that, we have wrapped things up again, and it is time to talk about our song of the day. I wanted a song that really hit today well, and it's a song I shared, shared on social media recently. I think I've played it for y'all before. I'm not sure. It's by a guy named Uncle Lucius. And it's called Keep the Wolves Away. The first time this ever popped up, it popped up for me on Pandora, on one of my channels. I think it was my Chris Stapleton channel. And I was I was working, you know, I was like sawing wood or something like that. So I want, I I'd never heard it before, and I thought it was Darius Rucker, you know, because he kind of has a similar sound of vocals, you know. And it sounds like something Darius Rucker would sing, but, you know, like halfway through it, I'm like, putting the saw down and walking over and picking the phone. I'm going, wait a minute, this this who is this? Because this is not Darius Rucker. And I found this guy, Uncle Lucius. He's got some great music. And so, anyway, that's how I found them. But this song, actually, here's how it fits today. This song is actually autobiographical. This song is his real life. 
his dad really did work in you know oil and gas in, in South Texas. And he really did get injured, and he really did almost die, and he really did get some money from the company, and the money did start to run out. And here Uncle Lucius is taking over the patriarch of the family and paying the bills now. But he's doing it following his passion, which is music. And the video, if you, if you don't usually check the videos out that go with these songs, this was, if you've never seen it, you might want to actually check it out. It starts out, he's a really, really little kid. He's playing with his toys and stuff, and dad goes off to work. Blue-collar family as it gets. By the time that uh, the accident happens, he's like 13. It says it right in the song. But 13, a child is making a change from a young a, a kid into a young man. And you can see in the video, they're trying to artistically come from the standpoint of when mom gets the call and she drops the phone and she's crying, the kid's upset too, but he's also kind of holding her. He's already stepping up as a man in that family. Dad's down. I got to do it. You know what? When you got a kid that does that at 13, you've done your job right. You've done your job right. But all through this, he's playing with his toys and he's also playing with his guitar. And at a point in the video, you see a, a line of people waiting to get into a little bar to listen to him play with his band. And the sign says, five bucks or a can of food. It looks like he's probably raising money for you know hurricane relief or something like that. But sitting in the audience are mom and dad. And he says, he's going for broke with every song I play because now it's my turn. Keep the wolves away. When it comes to following your passion, people say it's fanciful. People say it's uh, it's ignoring the responsibility of being an adult. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Richard Bach. And in his book, Confessions of a Reluctant Messiah, one of his quotes is, The best way to avoid responsibility is to say that I've got responsibilities. You have a responsibility not just to your family and to your community and the people around you. You do have a responsibility to yourself. And for every person that was ever told, ah, you can't make a living that way, that's really risky, whatever, whether it was making money as a musician or opening a restaurant or who the hell knows what, there's thousands of other people that said, damn that shit, and went and did it, and somehow they were successful at it. Those are the people that people look at today and say, it must be nice. You know what? I can tell you from experience. It is nice. But when you look at somebody that's been successful in the way that you wish you were and you say it must be nice, that's a damn good way to make sure that you'll never have it. Instead, look at those people. Make them the kind of hero we talked about today. And figure out how you too can have it. Because it is nice to actually be able to take care of your family, take care of your life, and do something you love. It's totally worth the sacrifice it's totally worth the risk. With that, it's been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Took my first breath where the muddy grasses spills into the gulf. Mexico, the skyline's colored by chemical plants that put bread on the table of the working man. Where the working man does his best to provide safety and shelter for kids and a wife. 
Giving a little of her soul every day Making overtime to keep the wolves away Any man tried to dig my daddy's grave And happened on a French-owned tank A ship spilling poison in the Galveston Bay Well, the liquid fire filled his lungs and his eyes Silenced any more cries Cold in the grip, death stinging pain He fought like hell to keep the wolves away Turn to keep the wolves away. 